There's nothing like your podcast selection. The topics and banter make for the complete driving experience, kind of like Goodyear Auto Service. They offer full-service car service. Whatever comes your way, they're ready with a lot of know-how and some friendly tips to help keep you moving. Keep the podcast flowing and your car going with Goodyear Auto Service. For all-around car care, visit GoodyearAutoService.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Madison Reed is revolutionizing the way women color their hair. You can get gorgeous salon quality, multidimensional hair color made from ingredients you can feel good about with no harsh odor. Hundreds of thousands of women have discovered this new way to color delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would love to honor crime writers and listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code CRIME. Go to madison-reed.com and use promo code CRIME. Say goodbye to expensive TV bills. Philo is the simple, powerful app for watching TV. Get access to more than 35 of your favorite entertainment channels like Investigation Discovery, HGTV, AMC, VH1, Discovery Lifetime, and more, as well as live TV on demand and unlimited recording, all for $16 a month, no contract needed. And there's never been a better deal. Start your free trial instantly with just a phone number, no credit card needed. Visit go.com. Philo.com slash crime. That's go.philo.com slash crime or text the word crime to 74456. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, someone throws a political lifeline to Adnan Syed. Laura, we're guessing, will throw a nutty over in the dark. And we're all super depressed watching the second season of The Handmaid's Tale. Plus, from Australia, we'll review The Teacher's Pet, a podcast about professional athlete, his missing wife, and his teenage lover. Joining me to get all of that done and a whole lot more is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and sometimes partner in crime, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Blessed be the fruit, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Under his eye, Kevin. Under his eye. (laughs) Gonna give me PTSD. (laughs) Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, and super certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, yeah. My cat lady status continues to grow. I'm like finding cats everywhere now. I know you are. I'll save it for later. I know you are. I'll save it. And finally with us is the novelist behind the City Trilogy and our book club barista, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. I was going to say something like handmade initially, but uh, (laughs) it's really creepy when the guys do it. It's super creepy. Yes. Really? Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> well, um, just so you but know. For guys, there'd be no handmade. It's so. true. Oh. That's true. <laughs> that's, that's actually We're yeah. an true. essential part of that. That's right. That <laughs> There's got to be someone to do the oppressing. 
Well, Aunt Lydia plays an important role in the oppressing too. Well, who gave Aunt, who gave Aunt Lydia her power? It was definitely a man. Aunt Lydia, I want to smack her so hard. Uh, just when you think she might be good, no. Nah. Just when you think she might at least like have a nice streak, she wrecks it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we do know what we're going to be discussing next week. I'm sure we're going to be talking about more than that. Like this week, we have five things we're talking about. But the podcast we're going to be reviewing next week is ESPN's new series of their 30 for 30 podcast. They've put out a five episode series called Bikram Power and Reckoning in a Yoga Empire. Spoiler alert. I'm off this week, Kevin, as you know, doing some house projects. I listened to this whole thing in a binge. Mm hmm. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to give it a thumbs up next week. So anyway, we're going to be talking about it next week. Okay. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I can't. It's hard to I just keep it down. But anyway, so we're going to talk, talking about that next week. I really recommend our listeners give it a try. If not, you can listen to our review and then decide. So first of all, Kevin, we have one of these. Adnan update. Wow, we're branding it. Making it brand specific. There you go, yeah. <laughs> well, in what would typically be called a true crime podcast update, if the courts ultimately uphold the decision to grant Serials non Syed a new trial, it will be prosecuted by the state's attorney for Baltimore. It's an elected position, and the race will conclude next month. Of the three candidates, the incumbent, Marilyn Mosby, hasn't commented on the case. And challenger, Thiruvignaraja, is actually lead counsel in an effort to preserve the 1999 conviction. Of course, this is in the Democratic primary leading up to this election. Yeah, right, but Kevin? there's no Republican running, so it's essentially that's going to be the right. Yeah. And and the third candidate, uh, Ivan Bates, threw a little monkey wrench in this whole thing this week. He told Rolling Stone that if elected, he would not retry Adnan and drop the charges. He says the state's case has since fallen apart now that Jay Wild has a to lying about its testimony, and the cell tower evidence has been proven unreliable. Now, Kevin, we should say some, all, some news also came out yesterday. This candidate, Ivan Bates, has had a banner fundraising period. Mm-hmm. Theora Vignaraja has raised almost nothing. Uh, Marilyn Mosby has the war chest of an incumbent, but this guy apparently has raised a lot of money. So he's a serious challenger. He's not a fringe he candidate. Is. He is. He's polling in second place with uh, Theory Way in the back. Yeah, yeah. So for as obstinate as the state has been on conceding any ground in this case, isn't this the first time we've heard someone potentially from the prosecution saying the case is no longer strong enough to pursue? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the, the party line has been, you know, from the state on down to the city that we have to preserve this conviction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're going to do things where well, the state's going to adjust its timeline, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of other people on the outside have been saying, you've got problems with this case. You know, it can't really hold up. But nobody in any sort of potential official position, nobody who would actually be called upon to make a decision like Mm. that has said anything close to that. So, I mean, a lot has got to happen. Adnan still has to win all of his appeals and preserve the right to have a new trial. And then- uh, This guy said he's going to drop the charges. Well, right. But he may not have a chance to drop the charges if the state attorney general wins on appeal. Mm. And- his uh, his conviction is reinstated. Right. This reminds me a little bit of the uh, new AG for Philadelphia, who was a criminal justice reform advocate uh-huh. who got elected attorney general in Philadelphia, a uh, 
just about everybody knows this if you've been listening to the Undisclosed podcast, but if not, um, a really, really corrupt uh, criminal justice part of the country with a lot of wrongful convictions because of a particularly corrupt uh, unit of cops who uh, one of who allegedly would just write confessions in his own handwriting and have <laughs> a defendant sign them. And I shouldn't say allegedly because I think that's actually something that we know happened anyway. And this guy ran for attorney general. And when he was running, he said, like, if I'm elected, I'm going to do all these things, including like setting these, some, you know, overturning these convictions of these people, like really. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, yeah. Sure. So it is interesting. So, Toby, you are our cynic. Uh, and in politics, if your opponent likes apples, you say apples are bad and you like oranges. So do you think this could be just a political move to wedge out Vignaraja? What other take would you have on this? Well, maybe he that as, he is just maybe he's an undisclosed he's just listener. So dedicated to Adnan's <laughs> innocence that he's willing to do it. Here comes the cynic. Maybe he's got half a brain and realizes that um, this is bullshit to continue pursuing this case at this point uh-huh. and a waste of money. Yeah, Laura. Well, I mean, I think he, he may consider it. Like, I I don't have any question. Well, I do, but I could see where he would feel that way. But the fact that that has become something he's saying on the campaign just makes it a political move. Hmm. You know, I mean, he could, he doesn't have to say it. He could just keep it to himself. And then as soon as he gets elected, you know, just not pursue it any further. But the fact that he's kind of crowing about it makes it a political move. So, Laura, um, what do you think? You know, I don't know enough about him to know if he's genuine or not. I, I just think it would be so refreshing if we actually had a prosecutor who was, you know, realistic about a case like this and recognized that at this point, like, okay, let's move on. Right. You know? Right. Um, that, that would just be refreshing kind of when we hear so many things about corrupt prosecutors and issues in the criminal justice system to see somebody who was actually reasonable. Mm. I would be really happy. Kevin, thoughts? Um, on the politics side, uh, I, well, I, I don't know if he probably didn't necessarily, it doesn't read like he came out and made a statement. It sounded like he was, he was answering a question. From Rolling Stone. From, from um, Amelia. Oh, Amelia, Par- Amelia McDonald Parrish. Yeah, yeah, Amelia <laughs> McDonald Parrish. She wrote the article. But as far as like the political jockeying, it's interesting because a lot of people believe that Theroux's campaign is actually uh, sympathetic to the incumbent. Marilyn Mosby, and that his campaign is designed to peel off the opposition vote from Bates. Hmm. So Bates is the challenger, and the way to deal with the challenger is to run a third candidate and right. split the opposition vote. I see. Uh, so that that's what people are saying, because Theodore hasn't raised any money. He ha- I mean, he's got a website, and... Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but this is a, this, this He's only this raised does like five thousand dollars or something as we've seen. In it this. does distinguish him from the other two candidates. It by does. Taking this it position. does. And Mosby is a very controversial figure, as we know. We've seen a Mosby pop up in many of the crime Freddie stories. Gray and, yeah. Freddie Gray and the Keepers. She popped up in that story, did she yeah, not? That's true. Yeah, <laughs> she's a controversial figure, and uh, it, that would be an interesting tactic as well. All right. Well, uh, let's move on. Uh, Kevin, can you, I don't know what this category would be. I guess this isn't an update. So make up a category for this and say it and I'll add some echo. Dystopian television (laughs) update. Now, we've been getting a lot of questions about whether or not we're going to talk about the season two of The Handmaid's Tale on the show. Uh, The Handmaid's Tale, of course, is the series on Hulu based on the Margaret Atwood novel, The Handmaid's Tale, the first season of the show pretty closely tracked with that novel except being set uh, kind of juxtaposed with a modern era America whereas of course the real novel was written a few decades ago so it wasn't quite so contemporary Um, but otherwise very closely tracked and this season season two 
picks up after the novel ends and provides us with a whole new story. Everything is going so well with the baby. And Alfred? Seems much improved. I will not let you grow up in this place. I'm worried about Ahmed. Ahmed is not your concern. I'm glad this could be arranged so quickly. Couldn't miss the opportunity to show you how much I appreciate all you've done for me. Laura, I'm just going to go ahead and let you talk about Handmaid's Tale season two so far. What do you think? I mean, honestly, I, I just want to know, is there anyone out there who is actually uh, enjoying watching this season? <laughs> week by week. Yeah. I, I can't week wait week. to see it again next week. I mean, like, seriously. So I, I caught up. Um, I, I didn't start when it first came back out. And I sat down on like a Friday night and watched three episodes in a row. And I was pretty much like catatonic after that. Like Ken comes and he's like, what's going on? I'm like, I can't talk right now. Mm. I mean, it is the most fucking depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. It's just too depressing now. Like it just makes every time I watch it, I'm like, okay, I got to find something happy, happy thoughts, happy thoughts, you know, like throw us a bone. But then they throw us a bone and somebody gets like killed or something Mm -hmm. or like, you know, cuts their ear off or some shit. And it's like, (laughs) oh, my God. God. I mean, I was seeing some hope at least when she was like running around the Boston Globe in her newfound sneakers and like getting in shape. I'm like, yes, she's going to run. And then, <laughs> alas, she's going to run. Let's just say the new sneakers were probably the best thing that happened to her <laughs> that week. I could go on and on, but I think that sums up my views on this season. Yeah, it's dark. It's dark. And it's, I think I, I, the first season was really violent, but I think this season the violence has taken a turn and it feels more torture porn violent rather than contextually violent the, to me than, than last season. Uh, but Toby, one of the things that you know was interesting that they decided to do was expand the universe of the series a little bit. Of course, um, Handmaid's Tale takes place in the Boston area and a couple of choices they've made in season two have been to more firmly ground it in Boston, showing well-known Boston landmarks like Fenway Park and the Boston Globe Building and all of those uh, conveniently located signs when she was hiding out in that one building (laughs) where all the old road signs happen to be kept. But another uh, part of the world that they are showing to us is the place that they talk about in the novel we never see, which is the colonies. Uh, What do you think about the expansion of the story into the colonies, Toby? I think it's a terrible idea. Why? So part of the story, at least in the first season, was that this all happens really fast, right? Like there's a whole th- a whole bunch of things that 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 make it seem like it went from being like kind of what we have today to what it was in in just like a couple of years because you know like when they see you know June's daughter again, she hasn't really aged that much. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the what 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 are the colonies like if this is what, if it's supposed to be the U.S. Mm-hmm. and like. Two or three years later, we've got colonies somewhere. I don't know. It just didn't seem like it made a whole lot of sense in the context of what they're kind of laying out in season one. Yeah. I feel the same way about, you know, Fenway being like this bizarre, overgrown, like decrepit place, which it is now, but it's even more so. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You're thinking of Wrigley Field. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it just makes it seem like Planet of the Apes or something. Right, right. And that that I don't think is consistent with the first season. So I, I had a hard time. I had a hard time with the entire thing, to be quite honest. I thought it was terrible. The part of season two I've actually enjoyed the most so far, which was, I think, too brief, and I want to see more of it, is the, the expanded action in Canada. Like, mm-hmm. To me, that's interesting. Like the survivors of this, the refugees from this. People in exile. People in exile. Like how are they coping with the fact that they know that their wives and children and loved ones are still stuck? 
and we got like a tease about that by seeing all these seasons, the episodes at the beginning of the season with, um, you know, couple the couple at the airport, uh, Rory Gilmore and her wife at the airport together. We see that the wife gets out and she doesn't, and then we never see the wife again. And and we have just visited Canada briefly with with the greatest line in in uh, season two so far with the uh, mute, the hair tour for mute oh. woman said, "Blessed be the fruit loop." <laughs> Uh, but you know that's the part of the expanded universe I enjoyed. Kevin, what did you think of that um, episode one being centered around this mock execution in Fenway Park? Seeing your beloved oh well Fenway Park desecrated thus, Lee. Oh, I th- I thought it was pretty powerful. I mean, you got to remember where they left off at the end of the last season with this act of rebellion, and uh, we think that uh, Alfred's going to be punished uh, by herself. Uh, because uh, she's whisked away, and we find out they rounded up all the handmaids who were insolent. Sorry, Aunt Lydia. And, uh, you know, they went to the, the trouble of making a fake gallows. Mm. So, I don't know. I, th- I think that it was a powerful way to start the season and to show, again, just another sign of past life. I mean, it means a lot to me because I'm a Red Sox fan, so I see it. But I think everybody kind of, like, can look at that and say, Oh, uh, that's something that you would just think would go on in society. Ba- Major League Baseball would continue, and no, it's abandoned. Doesn't that feel gratuitous, though, to use landmarks like that for a scene like that? Uh, well, couldn't n- have been anywhere. No, but I think it, it wants to. Pl- it doesn't want to pl- see the colonies. We have no idea where they are. Right. It's just all science fictiony, and it's probably somewhere in the continental U.S. that got hit with a nuclear bomb or some shit like that that we'll find out. But that's a good. It's a reminder that we're not so far in the future that all the trappings of the regular real world are still around. Right. They've just been abandoned. Right. I thought th- I thought it was really powerful, though, when you find out later, like, what happens at the Boston Globe. Right. Although, to be because, fair, like, that's not the paper where everybody would have been slaughtered. It would have been the Washington Post, for sure. But if you're in Boston, <laughs> but the idea is that, like, oh, yeah, of course, who, who right. you got to get for, you got to round up all the reporters yes. who are going to tell the truth. Yeah. And you have to get rid of them. No, no, no. Yes. And that was a joke on my part, obviously. Yeah. Go ahead, Toby. Well, A, I think Gillette Stadium is probably in pretty good shape. Probably. Yeah, it's um, pretty, pretty big, yeah. So Kevin said uh, said the opening scene was powerful. And I I didn't I didn't think that was a great opening scene, to be honest, in that I understood what they were going for, but there was no point in that scene where I thought June was going to be hung right. and die. We knew she was going right? to survive because we'd seen a million previews that showed her throughout the season in the show. And you're just mm-hmm. not going to kill her in the first 30 seconds. Right. So that bit of suspense is like completely false. And then, so you, but you have all this build up to something and then, and then nothing happens. Mm. And it seemed a little, you know, deflating. Mm-hmm. It sort of faked at doing something bold and then it backed away from it. Right. And I, I kind of feel like it's it's not exactly like sort of a metaphor for the entire second series. It's, as much as I've watched of it, it kind of feels like there's not a whole lot of ideas going on. Yeah. Like the first season, there was so much stuff going on about the transformation of society and about the places of of women in society and, you know, the the women who are like the women of the house. And then you had the handmaids and you had the aunts and you had... You know, and there was all this kind of interesting stuff about this, the way this new sort of dystopian society has been put together and June trying to find her way through it. And now it's, it, it turns into, it's basically a chase. Right. A chase movie with a little bit of like super dystopian radioactive country and then a little bit of Canada. Mm. But it, it seems like all the sort of interesting ideas have been drained out of it completely. 
Yeah, I I don't disagree. I'm I'm gonna still watch it because I want to see what happens. But I kind of disagree. But but my my feeling is that um, what I loved about season one was the ties to some of the political stuff going on today, uh-huh. and they have they've lost some of that by so much torture, porn, and violence, and just gratuitous misery in season two. But Kevin, Kevin, you're enjoying it. Yeah, I'm going to continue to watch it. We're so actually sure. in the middle of one episode right now. We came downstairs so to take. So am I. We're in the yeah. <laughs> middle of uh, episode six. Like Toby <laughs> watches basketball while we record. <laughs> is that the one where they're like having the strange brunch? Yes. yes that's where we stopped, yeah. <laughs> the woman whose tongue has been cut out, and I'm yeah. like, that's why she's not answering you. <laughs> and I was just waiting for someone to be like, they cut her fucking tongue out. That's yeah. why she, and I'm like, no, they won't say that. <laughs> I do love Serena, so, though. I think that character is the mo- one of the most interesting characters in the in the series. And yeah. So a Serena-centric episode I can get down with. All right. Well, uh, let's move on. Kevin, can you please make up a title for this since you didn't write one on the script? (laughs) True True Crime crime Podcast podcast Update. update. We like In the Dark enough that we are going to give you episode updates of season two of In the Dark throughout its season right here on Crime Writers On. You want to talk about In the Dark season two? This is your place. Mostly so we can all listen to Lara's reaction to every episode. (laughs) The cell door was open, so we walked inside. And as we did, the sunlight faded, so I pulled out my flashlight. And as I shined the flashlight around, I saw something written on the wall next to a bottom bunk. Cookie Heart Regina in this, like, childish, like this teenager handwriting. There's graffiti on the wall that says Cookie. I mean, he definitely was here. We don't know exactly when, but... This was his cell at some point. Oh, yeah. Cookie. Odell Cookie Hallman. The state's most important witness in the Curtis Flowers case. The man who testified that Curtis confessed to him in prison. So in episode five of In the Dark Season 2, we hear about the criminal career of Odell Hallman, also known as Cookie. He is the jailhouse informant who first testified in Curtis Flowers' defense, then became the star witness for the prosecution in subsequent trials. Madeline lays out the many felonies on Cookie's rap sheet and how his cooperation in the Flowers case saved him time and time again from lengthy prison sentences, despite the court being told he was not being given anything for his participation. And then she drops the bomb. Spoiler alert. Uh, I'm going to put in the show notes where you can fast forward to in case you have not listened to the most recent episode of In the Dark yet. In 2016, Cookie went on a mass killing spree and murdered three people, enabled by the fact that he was out on the streets. Lara Bricker, this episode was a bit of a slow burn. We got a lot about Mm -hmm. um, Cookie's rap sheet. We hear a lot about his history. We hear a lot about the context about that. And Madeline builds and builds and builds this case. And then at the end, she says, it is the prosecutor's choices that led to these mass killings. Um, What was your reading on the rage meter when you got to that part in the episode? I would say 11 out of 10, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it was it was a slow build. So, you know, I was on my little walk about town and it was like 25 minutes in when I ran into my minister and I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, it's bad. He's got this really long rap sheet and that's crap. But you know what? I remind myself, like I used to get really excited when I was a defense investigator and I'd find all this background on somebody that had all these convictions and the attorneys always would be like, yeah, that's great and all, but the only time that this really can come into play when they're a witness is if they have crimes of dishonesty. Right. And I would be like, yeah, but these people are bad, you know, like mm-hmm. and they're not reliable, but it, it didn't matter. So I was at that point, I was I was at that. I was like, well, 
remember this, Laura. You know what? This guy has a horrible rap sheet. I can't believe they think he's credible. Even the people at the jail think he's like total full of shit. Um, the prisoners are all afraid of him. But I'm like, but, you know. But then when we found, when, when we get to the scene, that was like the most horrific scene with the little boy hiding in the closet. Yep. Well, everybody was killed and the little boy having to play dead so his dad didn't kill him. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, wait a minute. And I'm walking along. I'm like, wait a minute. The last episode before this one, didn't she say that he is still going to be a f- witness in mm-hmm. this trial? Yep. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. But I, but that, And then when you recognize that this prosecutor's like lust for getting Curtis convicted and keeping him behind bars just blinded him so badly to the point that clearly you, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And then she lays it out even more obviously. This murder spree would not have happened if he had been convicted and sentenced as a habitual offender, which those people, they're the worst to work with habitual offenders. Worst. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, that that's where my rage meter is. Um, but you know what? Um, the bonus that came from this is I had my best walk ever, according to my fitness watch. Mm. So I got a little thing that said, Laura, you had your best fitness walk ever. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I did. You did. Because I kept walking. You did. And you did a wonderful Facebook Live during your walk with Pastor Emily, mm-hmm. which uh, our mm-hmm. Facebook group, the Crime Writers on Official Facebook discussion group, got to see. I think it was one of the best Facebook Lives we've ever done, frankly. <laughs> Toby, you know, sometimes you listen to these podcasts and like the true crime ones, you know, they, you know, they add drama by bringing you to different places and public radio, we call it boots on gravel, where it's like, let's take you to the field where this happened and the sound of the wind. But um, the very real and very odd, I think, uh, detail here, because it was the place they had to go, was this old uh, abandoned jail where the county stores its arrest records as somebody who writes fiction, like, would you even think to make something like that up? Or did that just strike you as just like a very odd real life detail? Uh, yeah, it's definitely a very odd real life detail <laughs> in sort of, you know, the dystopian northern Mississippi small town <laughs> justice system. Yeah. And like, you know, and then in that same jail, they found the cell where Cookie had at once stayed and the graffiti. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? Absolutely. Did you see the video online? I have not seen the video online, but the online elements are very good. If you go to the In the Dark website, you can see the video of their tour Mm -hmm. of that jail. Um, Really? Yeah, it's an old jail, and it's like there's it's a they built on a a new jail under the same building, but that also has been closed. So I was like, I gotta see, like, what is the inside? Yeah, that's exactly what you would think. Decrepit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Scary. <laughs> now, uh, Kevin, there was a slow build in this episode. Um, do you think that made the dramatic payoff more powerful? Yeah. Or did, did, were you twiddling your thumbs to the slow build? No, I mean, I, I was fine with it. I was wondering where Madeline was going because, we, you know, we've already established that, that Cookie is a witness against Curtis Flowers. And so she's like reading all these, uh, these, she's getting at like sort of like all these violent crimes and like really like really pushing the read a little bit and I'm kind of like all right what are you embellishing here like what are you going for mm. because isn't the isn't the case you know whether or not he's credible right so to like start talking about like all the violent crimes he's had and this violent crime and I'm kind of like well what, what is this all about You're like we I'm get like, it I, yeah I'm like we get it like that's not really that's like kind of that's not really part of the point though is it because we we're looking at and and then I realize oh fuck she just set up all those pins to knock them down she's talking about Doug Evans 
unless you're local, you don't know how right. the how the cookie story ends. Right, and she's talking about Doug Evans. She's well, she building a case the, against she, Doug Evans. She's, right, yes. You don't realize that like this is b- brought up because you want to be able to see all the different times that he could have faced the full measure of justice. Or some measure of that justice. That would have yeah. kept him off the streets. Uh, and certainly, I mean, he was... What, like two years after allegedly trying to run down a deputy, he was still waiting for trial? Mm-hmm. I guess that's just because they still wanted to sneak one more Curtis Flowers trial in right. before he went away, so he doesn't have to say on the, on the, on the stand what, you know, what happened to him. I'll just say this. Like, uh, Toby said either last week or the week before that if, and I don't think he said it quite this way, but this is how I remember it because I tend to exaggerate in my mind. Uh, I think Toby said something like if he committed a murder and his life story was being told about a wrong, his wrongful conviction, like he'd want Madeline Barron to tell his story. I don't yeah. know that's exactly what he said. I'll tell you this. If I did anything, I would want Madeline Barron to be the one to tell my story. It was, I thought, and like you, through listening to this episode, I found myself wondering, like, why? Why am I hearing this? Why am mm-hmm. I hearing this? Why am I hearing this? I shouldn't have thought that. I should have just trusted this team. There's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason. Because there hasn't been a single superfluous interview or moment in this whole podcast so far. And this episode maybe felt that way to me as I was listening to it. And I got to the end and I realized, oh, no, everything I heard in this episode mattered, including that case with that deputy where they went and talked to uh-huh. uh, the other guy who was like, uh, yeah, I, th- I don't know why he got out, but my assumption is because they needed him for some other case and they got him out as a witness. Apparently he did that all the time. It's like, oh, okay, we know. We've heard that before. We know. But then we realize like, the payoff at the end is that, like, no, this is about Doug Evans. This is about the choices he made which she drew a straight line from with no equivocation that these three murders would not have happened. Yeah, no, actually, I think that the the real big payoff at the end was to find out that prisoners can send Facebook friend requests. Yes. <laughs> Holy crap. Who yes. the hell knew that? Can we talk about that, please? Can we look it up and see if we can find his page? Laura, uh, what did you think about the fact that we are going to hear from Cookie because this team became friends with him on Facebook? I can't even believe... I, I, I'm 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 like almost speechless over that because, first of all, how the hell is he getting internet access in jail? I mean, unless somebody smuggled a phone into him or mm. something. Maybe Doug Evans I, gave him a phone. I just assume <laughs> so that Doug Evans like arranges for about him the to, case. or just arranges for him to have like a a reasonable prison stay because. Yeah. He needs him. Yeah, exactly. Toby, what did you think of the scene where uh, Doug Evans brought all the family members together, these murder victims, for a meeting that he couched as unimportant? Mm -hmm. And then contrary to this entire law enforcement community's strong desire to fry everyone, uh, basically told the family like, oh, no, he took a plea and he feels real bad for what he did. What do you think about that disparate application of justice that we saw in this community as demonstrated by that scene? Well, I mean, it's it's just it's corruption, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's he's got a guy who's helping him, you know, fix things the way he wants to. And the guy got out of hand, but he's still his guy. So he's protecting him. Yeah. Kevin, final thoughts about this new uh, episode of In the Dark, season two? Well, like you said, you know, it set up the pins so that they could be knocked down. Madeline makes two promises with the, with the series. Is you're going to look at the case of this guy who's been on death row for 20 plus years and the prosecutor who's keeping him there. So we've heard an awful lot about 
the the case of Curtis Flowers, mm-hmm. and now I think we're pivoting towards more towards uh, Doug Evans, yep. the prosecutor. Now we're starting to see not just maybe his misplaced zeal, but like a lot of the bad decisions that he's made along the way. Right, like those bad decisions, but not like the bad decision to skip and Latote and not get a subscription <laughs> to Latote. A super bad decision to not reconfigure your tote once you're given the opportunity to do so. Absolutely, it's very important to reconfigure your tote. Now it you, is. You it know is. how difficult it is to just like shop online. Sure. Right? I mean, stuff kind of looks ugly good. sweater. <laughs> you won't believe the sweater Rebecca's wearing. It is not from Latote. You know, you look at something, even like when you're in the store, like you try something on for like two minutes, you look at it in the mirror and you think, uh, okay, I want to commit to this, or I don't want this in my closet for the next 10 years. But with Latote, it takes a lot of the stress out of getting dressed. Yeah. Because Latote, they take your measurements and your ratings and they learn not just your size, but the nuances of how you like your clothes to fit. Mm-hmm. So when you get new clothes, they are the right styles and the right size. Yep. And then, of course, you get to take those clothes and you get to wear them, wear them for a day, a week, however long you like. When you're done with them, put them back in the bag, keep the things that you like, pay for those, or just send the rest of it back, send all of it back. You get a whole new outfit and you always are looking sharp. Laura, I know you recently got a, a Latote delivery. What were some of the exquisite things that you dressed up in? Well, I have to say the one that I was most excited for, I got this very cute jean jacket that had some little roses embroidered on it. And oh. I was like, I was like, ooh, I'm like the biker Kang. And mm. Ken's like, no, you're not. And so I'm like, <laughs> I'm super trendy. And he's like, yeah, Bobby trendy. But I was. And you know what? It was so, I, I like was like, wow, I never would have actually bought this if I went to the store. But when I ordered it from Latote and I tried it on, I was like, wow. I look good, and you and did. it was it was like a, it was an exciting moment, and I got a very cute little scarf, and I saw Rebecca got the same cute scarf last week when I saw her doing a Facebook Live video mm-hmm. from work. Sometimes I get a tote, and I have like you know one thing I like, and I I'm like okay, I kind of hem and haw, am I gonna buy it? But this time I got three things I like, which is awesome because what happens is when you buy them, then your next month of the tote is free. No, if you buy your entire tote, you get a month free, you know, and, and if you don't like something, send it back, and within like two days you. Get Get a new tote. With Latote, you can rent unlimited fashion. Just wear, return, and discover fashion that fits you better. It'll take the stress out of getting dressed. Go to latote.com. That's L-E-T-O-T-E.com to get started. And enter promo code CRIME at Crime. checkout to get 50% off your first month. Again, that's latote.com and enter code CRIME. Crime. What else you got, Kevin? Not only... Is it great like when somebody who's a stylist gets to know your your favorite things that you like to mm-hmm. wear? Yep. How about a wine club that likes to know about the things that you like to drink? Tell me about it, please. First Leaf is the only wine club tailored to you, so the more you taste and rate, the better that they will send you when they customize your box. I of love wine. it. Tell yeah. me more. So First Leaf will even create a limited time offer introductory three pack of wine based on your flavor profile. Best part of all is you get three bottles of wine for just five dollars each. These are wines that should it's go for deal. twenty dollars a piece. Yet yeah, you, you you use their website. They ask you a couple of flavor profile questions. You tell them what you like, and then when you, when you sample, like go back and tell them what you like. Tell them what you didn't really care for either, and like they will make the adjustments and they'll get you the best wines possible. It's like the algorithm from France or something. Yeah, yeah. So you're getting like high end delicious wine that you actually will like. But for like gas station wine prices. Right, right. And if you get a bottle, is it gas station prices? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, this is definitely some high quality wine. I and know. Look, if, you, if you do get a bottle of wine that you don't really care for, that's okay. You can send it back. They will guarantee that you will love the wine you buy or you can get your money back on that. So try First Leaf Wine Club today. We're buying great wine is simple. Sign up with our personal link. And you'll get an exclusive introductory offer. It's three bottles of wine for only $15 plus free shipping. That's not all. If you try these three wines, you get an extra $10 off your next box. So Good you, deal. So you just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. Crime. That's tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. Tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. Yes. All right. Moving on. Uh, before we start our review this week, Kevin, can you please read this for me? Love mail. Uh, we want to share a really great email that we received this week from longtime listener Monica Negron Valentin. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. From Puerto Rico. It's Puerto Rico. <laughs> Puerto Rico. Is that what you're mispronouncing? No. Uh, so here's what Monica says. When we were in the midst of Hurricane Maria aftermath... You, These Are Their Stories, and other podcasts were my companions. At the first glimpse of connectivity, I downloaded the latest episodes to listen to on those long days. Now that things are way, way, way better, I check Stitcher every Friday morning before work to see if the latest Crime Writers app is up. Most of the times, I save it for Saturday mornings just to indulge, but it makes me happy to know a new episode is waiting. The thing I love most about Crime Writers On is that you are sardonic Chen Xers like myself, except Laura, for me, she's too angelic and pure. You guys are a hoot. <laughs> Much love to Kevin, Laura, and Toby, who is the sapio sex symbol of course mm. isn't that nice wow. it is she said <laughs> earlier in her email that uh english is not her first language mm-hmm. but i had to look up sapiosexual what does that mean it's when uh intelligence is the most oh. sexually attractive thing about somebody oh so toby has nothing else that's sexually yeah, even he's laughing at that bullshit <laughs> she hasn't seen the guns <laughs> hasn't seen the guns <laughs> my god that's so nice of course if i had to wait for connectivity in a crisis. And power. And power. I don't know if I would be the first thing that I downloaded, but no. what a wonderful email that is. It was a wonderful email. So good luck to you, and uh, thank you for writing to us. I'm glad and she's okay and things are get, get sounds like where she is, it's getting better. Sounds like where she is getting better. So we're thinking of you, and thank you for writing into us. All right, moving on. Uh, from the newspaper The Australian comes a podcast about the unsolved murder of Lynn Dawson. Her husband was professional rugby player and sports teacher. I think they actually say sport teacher. (laughs) Chris Dawson. Immediately after Lynn disappeared in 1982, Dawson moved in his girlfriend, a 16-year-old student from Cromer High School. Lynette Dawson was reported missing by her husband, former Newtown Jets rugby league star Chris Dawson. He said I was going to get a hitman to kill Lynn and he rang me and said Lynn's gone, she isn't coming back. I just want justice and I'd love her little girls to know she didn't leave them. Although Lynn's body has never been discovered and Dawson has never been charged, coroners have twice concluded the athlete murdered his wife. Reporter and host Hedley Thomas digs into the case, promising startling new evidence. We will be discussing highlights of the case and plot points from the first two episodes of the podcast Teacher's Pet. So if you want to skip ahead to our spoiler-free reviews, jump to the time code listed in the show notes. So, first off, the name of the podcast, The Teacher's Pet, it implies the critical focus will be on the 16-year-old girl 
and not the murder suspect who seduced her. Kevin, what do you think of the title of this podcast? I know you hate that. You do? <laughs> no, you hate that, yeah. You know you what? I hated it more in episode one. I hated it less in episode two when mm. he talked about the confluence of the police song coming out during his relationship with the 16-year-old girl and how everyone's singing in the hallways. Right. I mean, I think it's an obvious choice mm-hmm. uh, given the the story, I, you know, so I don't knock it for that. But uh, I think that you're right that it does imply that the focus is on the 16-year-old student and not... The, the murder suspect. I will say, um, the reporter here, Headley, Headley, he has said a couple of times, and it's made me very uncomfortable about his suspicions about the complicitness of this 16-year-old girl in this crime, and he's gotten pushback from his friend Rebecca, I think her name is, who's writing the book about it, mm-hmm. and from other people who've been like, what are you talking about? Like, he like was a predator, and she was a child, and... I like that people are giving him pushback on that because that made me really uncomfortable. (laughs) I'll be really straight with you on that. Now, um, since uh, her disappearance and over the years, there has been speculation that Lynn may have simply abandoned her family and is living a secret life, perhaps showing up on an episode of Antiques Roadshow. Um, (laughs) That was the Laura. uh, Laura, are you buying that bullshit? No. That's <laughs> fucking ridiculous. I mean, it's like that the police weren't even suspicious of any of that. Oh, yeah, sure. She just left, left her kids, never used her credit cards again. Never. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. She left all part. our nice stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Now, no. now, you said, no. Laura, that um, you feel like there could be an opportunity here to expose some bad police work, right? Yeah. I mean, I just found it. I mean, I, I, I recognize this was 36 years ago and I recognize that things were done differently. But to think that a woman just like vanishes into thin air and um, is never heard from again and nobody seems to be the least bit like concerned about this. Mm. It just struck me. I was like, what What are these people smoking? Right. Like, really? Right. And when you hear that the little babysitter girl moves in like immediately and is like swimming topless around in the pool and all that. And I'm like, does nobody think this looks a little suspicious? I don't know. Yeah. Episode one does talk about the facts of the case and really, I think, lays out my expectation was that it was going to be about why do we think that Chris committed this murder? But episode two takes this hard right hand turn veering into this look at Cromer High School and the pattern of teachers, not just Chris and his twin brother. We'll talk about the creepiness of the twins here in a couple minutes. Um, That there was this culture of having sex with students. Toby, this was a hard right turn. And um, I I think reminiscent of something else we've talked about on this show, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a a lot like Keepers, Mm -hmm. you know, without the whole Catholicism running Baltimore aspect of it. And vaginas in a refrigerator. Oh, Jesus. Vag- yes. Wrapped in well, newspaper. We're, we're not all the way through the podcast. Uh, who yet, knows, so. right? There's, Although there's that time. that this episode took that hard right, that interview was from somebody who called him after episode one had come out, mm-hmm. he said, it's right? It's true, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, so what do you think of this, Toby? Is it, is it worth taking the time out from this murder story to look at this culture that led to this 16-year-old girl being involved in this case? Well, I guess the question is, is, is the murder the story or is this like pedophile ring at this high school, Mm -hmm. is that the story? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard to tell after two episodes, but to me, it's a strange thing that, you know, when they're, when they're uh, interviewing the former principal, I guess. And he, he's basically like, Oh, you know, we had 1300 kids. How can I possibly keep track of, you know, if my teachers are, you know, 
going drinking at bars and having sex with some of the students. There's no way I can do that. Well, I think you should so, try. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about, dude? What do you do with your time? You had one job. <laughs> yeah, it's like all, all like all this that one woman they talked to. She's like, well, yeah, you know, I can think of a half dozen off the top of my head male teachers who are having sex with students. It's weird. Like, I, I'll be interested to see. I, I don't think you can drop that line of the story where it is right now. Like, you can't, like, okay, well, that was done. Moving and on. Gone episode three <laughs> and never, never get back to it. I mean, it seems it seems pretty critical. And then maybe I missed this. Was Did the brother work at that school, he too? He did, yes. Yeah. He also worked okay. at the same school. And uh, I think that the allegation made in the podcast was that Chris, like, basically got this idea because his brother used to do it all the time. That's what I heard. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I got that okay. That, that, that was kind of what I thought. So anyway, I, I mean, I think that's a good thread. I, I I hope they pursue it a little bit more and find out a little bit about the, the evolution of this. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you get five or six male teachers all go in on this and like nobody has like any kind of conscience to mm-hmm. like be like, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. And like- alert somebody. And then they keep talking about how, you know, it was only a bunch of strong mothers were the only people who said anything. What was going on with the dads? Well, the dads were too busy abandoning their daughters when they were being uh, Mm. groomed by a pedophile and and blaming them for their relationship. That guy was such a dick. (laughs) Sorry, but like... Who played him. (laughs) Oh. I will say the actors they have doing the reads of the transcript are actually very good. Yeah, I actually this is like, like one. It's yeah. like one instance where they have actors doing the reads, and I'm like, oh, that actually sounds like it could be the real it's- person. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it actually stirred me to be even more angry because he sounded. I mean, it sounded like a real, you know, real person. They talking. hired a dick actor to play the dick. Yeah. Dad. Oh. yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Are you, like, oh yeah, okay, because it's totally cool to just abandon your kid when she's been groomed by a pedophile, mm. and yeah. Oh. The whole thing. Kevin looked like you were waiting to say something. Yeah, where I think, you know, we had some criticism of the keepers where it veered off from the story of the Sister the Kathy. And, of Sister Kathy, and it got into a lot of the uh, sex abuse in the church, which was important and necessary context uh, around the crime, but it spent you know, ended up being a good percentage of the time away from what the actual story was. Right. So here, I think like the, uh, I don't know in the end how much time is going to be given to the high school teachers, but I think it's important in the sense that we need some context as to why people didn't freak out when a teacher started having a relationship with a 16-year-old and it's because it was, it was happening. Yeah. And it wasn't like he was the only one. I right. mean, I think, I think to some extent it's a because it was out in the open and I, and I don't know. But I think that that's important. And I think that's why it's relevant to the larger story. Mm-hmm. But again, I wouldn't want to do, I wouldn't want this to be a 10 episode podcast and like three of them are about the high school. Right. Although I do think there is a great podcast that somebody hasn't made yet yeah. about the culture of sex abuse in prep schools and oh, high yeah, schools. Oh, yeah, sure. And I, you right, know, I'm not saying it's, it's, I mean, that they, isn't important. I'm just saying... We live very yeah. close to people who might remember the Owen Labrie St. Paul's case. All of the lawsuits and allegations that had come out about St. Paul's school after that case... It's keeper stuff. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable. It's teachers who brought students in the 70s to 
to New York to visit brothels and made young teenage boys who were virgins have sex with prostitutes in front of teachers. Oh, yeah. It's stuff that's come out in these allegations and lawsuits and these investigations. It's like there's a great podcast to be made there. And I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that one where somebody died is the right way to frame it because those are two separate stories. And that was my issue with the keepers. It's like tell us the Catholic church, Catholic school story or tell us the mystery story. But yeah, it's like when the mystery of Sister Kathy, like, I believe you that the church did all this stuff. Tell me more about Sister Kathy. What happened? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think they- <laughs> that's that's how I feel in this this podcast. I feel like it's either going to be about the murder or it's got to be about the school with all of these kids having sex with teachers. Well, I just think they, I don't know what the thought process was, but to a certain extent, my feeling about the keepers and, and, and so far this is that the murder slash disappearance is is a way to get sort of a window in on the sex abuse stuff. Because mm. I think if you throw a sex abuse podcast out there, I think I think it's a it's a tough <laughs> tough thing to get people to listen to. Mm. So I think you 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 start it with the true crime so that lures people in, and then you connect it with this. But that's that's just a guess. But see how already much of a distraction that is yeah. that we've gone. It's like a bait we've left and our switch. discussion about the the missing woman to talk about this. We know it's very little same, about yeah. the missing woman. Yeah, we, exactly. But it, it it it's already it's pulling listeners into a, a different direction as opposed to what the narrative arc is set up to be. Right. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. well, I just wonder if that's intentional. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's where it's actually going. Yeah. Maybe. But meanwhile, we have this other very compelling storyline that. Were it not for the school sex abuse storyline, to me, could be the central focus of this. And given that that woman called him, she said, he said after episode one, and given what we heard in episode one and in the trailer, I wonder how much of this more we're going to hear about these brothers. Uh, we hear in episode two this like vintage TV show on which they appeared. Checkerboard, was it called? Nice. Um, where it was like these preternaturally close twins and how like creepy it was and like their wives being like, how does it feel being married to two men? Uh, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. But then it what was weird about that whole section to me where we hear the two brothers talking uh, in this vintage TV show is the announcer would ask them a question. They would say no. And then they would say, they would give an example of how it was actually true. So she would say, like, did you ever, you know, play any games with girls where you'd be dating one and then you would switch places? And they were like, no, 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 we didn't do that. I mean, we did do a thing where we would sometimes, like, ask a girl out and the other one of us would go out with her instead. And I'm like, you just said you didn't do that. Like, what is the matter with you, sociopath twins? Yeah. Uh, Kevin, what do you think? T- creepy twin storyline? I mean, is it, oh, well, is, it, is it bad to characterize twins as creepy? Is well, that something we, that I tend to do? We already know that twins Pop are creepy. Pop culture uh, characterizes <laughs> twins as creepy. No, I mean, I think that there's, uh, I believe, Headley, and I have to call him Headley because I like uh, Blazing Saddles. Headley. Right. Uh, Headley Lamar. Head, that's Headley. Uh, he <laughs> is setting up the, the relationship with the twin as, as something more than just a, uh, a a quirk or an interesting character trait that he has a twin that he's close with. I think somehow the twin plays a larger role in the, the story. It's like a Dead Ringers type situation? Well, yeah. Yeah. I think he's he he's going to be alleging that the twin helped him cover up the murder mm. or helped dispose of the body or something. I think that they you know they they did it together is well, what he's trying to get at. You know, if you want an alibi for where you are during the time of a homicide, 
Having Ooh. a twin brother is very helpful. It is helpful. I don't know if that's where this, I mean, nobody mm. knows like when, exactly when she disappeared, so I don't know if he needs an alibi. Especially but. when like they had the whole thing where they used to uh, deny that they would ever switch jobs and then admitted that they used to switch jobs all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was a dishwasher and he was a line cook and we used to just switch jobs. <laughs> okay, then the answer to that question should have been yes, Chris and Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Teacher's Pet, uh, one of the things I really like about it is um, atmosphere. I think it's really fun to listen to a podcast reported in part of the world that uh, we've never visited. Laura, a scale of one to ten, how much do you want to go to one of these Australian beach communities when you listen to a show like this? (laughs) (laughs) 9.75. Except for the sharks. There's a lot of sharks down there. I've seen the jumping sharks, and they kind of freak me out a little bit, but... (laughs) And that's what I like about that. That was actually why I wanted to listen to this, because I find it really interesting to listen to cases um, from different parts of the world and hear how the justice system works in different countries. And, you know, and it's just silly. I like how I'm like, well, they had the coroner's inquest. I'm like, that sounds so official. The coroner's inquest twice proved or, you know, found that she had been murdered right. by homicide. But they don't have a body. So how, how did they come yeah. to that conclusion? Which He did it. So, yeah, I want to I want to hear more. I want to hear more about the woman, that, Lynn, that went missing. I want to hear more about the police investigation. And I want to hear more about what's going on now. Because for me that, you know, I yes, I, I, I think it's important to tell the story of what happened at the school. But don't leave us hanging about poor Lynn. Hmm. All right, so why don't we do that thing we do? We're only two episodes in to The Teacher's Pet, so I think we can just go ahead and uh, give it our thumbs up, thumbs down review, let our listeners know if they should check it out, whether or not you'll continue listening to it, uh, Crime Writers On. Uh, So, Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Teacher's Pet from The Australian? Huh. Um, I'm going to go thumbs up. I'm not like a super enthusiastic thumbs up, but I'm going to keep listening because it is an interesting story. And it is, like I said, interesting to hear how cases are handled in different parts of the world and get a little education on that at the same time. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the teacher's pet from the Australian? Well, first of all, I'm not as afraid of sharks as I am as those box jellyfish. (laughs) 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 Which are supposedly just the worst. Mm. I think they call them snotties. Yeah. So anyway, about this podcast, <laughs> I think it's really good. It's actually like we haven't really gone quite into that, but it's sort of an insane story, mm-hmm. quite honestly, mm-hmm. with the <laughs> the pedophile ring at the high school, the identical twins who had to go to speech therapy when they were young because they had their own little language. It's like, what the hell was that movie with uh, the girl from Party of Five and Denise Richards and... Uh, oh, uh, you mean Nev Campbell? Wild, Wild things. things. Yeah. Wild Things. It's a crazy story that's told in this sort of, you know, somewhat matter-of-fact way. But I, I think it's it's got a lot of, lot of elements going on. Yeah, I like it. So I'm torn because this podcast is fine. But I feel like with now that we're no longer doing thumbs sideways, like it's to me, it's just fine. It's utilitarian. It's meh. I'm not 100 percent sure I'll keep listening, uh, but I might if I don't have anything else to do. Um, So I guess I got to go to thumbs down. I do think it's an interesting story. I don't think it's a bad podcast. I think a lot of our listeners will like it. I think it's really hard to listen to In the Dark season two at the same time you're reviewing yeah. other podcasts because in the dark season True. two is a masterful damn podcast and this podcast is pretty good for an australian newspaper podcast but um i have to i can't do thumbs up on this one for that reason maybe that doesn't sound fair but that's how i feel about it kevin what about you i'm exactly where you are that i think this is very suitable podcast it's an interesting story 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether they're doing a good job with this, uh, like on a production side. Mm-hmm. Like they're letting like really long pieces of interview tape, of interview tape yeah. going, and that Phone. it's hard to hear. Yep. And you know, not not providing a lot of context. I think like the last five minutes or five, ten minutes of the latest episode were like two different people, two yeah. interviews, and yeah. so it, it makes it a little hard to follow along. So I'm going to be a thumbs down. It's an interesting story. I actually, you know, even though I'm a thumbs down, I might listen to another episode to mm-hmm. see if it picks up again. Yeah. But um, you know, again, I'm not quite certain I've got what this story is about, other or where it's going, other than sort of the. The details of the crime and questioning, you know, whether or not uh, in this investigation, whether or not it was a bag job. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of a bag job, let me tell you about Dagny Dover. Ooh, Dagny Dover. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Yeah. We're going to talk today about the legend tote, Mm -hmm. which is a bag, Rebecca, that you got. I did. Uh, It is the ultimate day to night carry all. It has uh, pockets for your wallet, phone, all your credit cards, your water bottle. It has a detachable key leech, mm-hmm. leash, and it has a padded compartment that fits a laptop. So it definitely looks like it has, is fashionable and functional. Yep. Tell me why you like yours. I can tell you why I love these bags. These bags are beautifully designed. They are the kind of bags that if you see somebody with one of these bags, this tote, this Dagny Dover tote, it's the kind of bag that would inspire a person who likes bags like me to go like, oh, that lady has got a really nice bag. So it has all of that fancy stuff. It's beautifully made. The quality of the leather and the quality of the materials of these bags is amazing. Very understated and elegant bags, but so freaking practical. So this tote, you know, I have a very expensive uh, day tote that I carry around as my work bag. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to go somewhere, like maybe jump on a plane with it, like I still have to switch to a different bag so I can fit my headphones and like all my... This tote could do it all. There's pockets for everything. There's space for everything. It's practical. It's beautifully designed. And it is beautiful. So it's like fashionable and functional. Beautiful bag. Yeah. Uh, Dagny Dover is offering our listeners 20% off their purchase. When they go to dagnydover.com slash crime Crime. and enter code crime. Crime. So don't put off getting organized. This bag has changed Rebecca's life. It has. I love it. Check them out at dagnydover.com slash crime. That's D-A-G-N-E dover.com slash crime. And use our code crime to get 20% off your order. You'll be happy you did. Use code crime. What else you got, Kevin? Crime. Well, today's show is also brought to us by... Epic Reads and Invisible Ghosts. Ooh. Invisible Ghosts is a heartfelt, sharply funny new novel by Robin Schneider, the author of The Beginning of Everything. Mm-hmm. It's a boy meets girl story with a major twist. Ready for this? It's boy also meets girl's ghost brother. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds like he's a visible ghost. <laughs> he's a visible <laughs> invisible to other people but okay. there's also yes right Rose and her brother Logan are pretty much inseparable the only catch is that Logan died years ago in a tragic accident and Rose is the only one who can see his ghost or so she thinks staying close to her brother has meant distancing herself from everyone else but when a childhood friend moves back to town and the sparks begin to fly Rose finds it's becoming harder to choose between the boy who makes her feel alive and the brother she isn't ready to lose. Mm. Invisible Ghost says everything you need in a perfect summer read, swoony romance, hilarious banter, and some tear-jerkingly honest moments of truth. It's a can't-miss contemporary romance, perfect for fans of John Green and Nicola Yoon. Invisible Ghosts is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. 
And now it's time for a favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, the crime of, of the week. The week. <laughs> Officials in China have arrested a wanted criminal who was discovered through facial recognition while attending a pop concert. The headliner was Jackie Chung, China's Michael Jackson. Authorities say they used artificial intelligence to scan the faces of tens of thousands of concert goers. The man's crime? In 2015, he allegedly stole $17,000 of potatoes. Oh. The Chinese authoritarian government has been investing billions of dollars in facial recognition technology, presumably to locate political dissenters. Madison Square Garden is also looking into implementing the same security technology for events. Panel, the potato ganker, he's not alone. He's potato the ganker? third person captured by facial recognition at a Jackie Chung concert this year. What were the two other music fans arrested for? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, crimes not made public, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just looked it up. Lou and Ao both arrested uh, for crimes not made public. So that kind of makes me suspicious. I really actually want to know what they were arrested for because I have no idea. Hmm. What about you, Toby? What do you think the other two music fans were arrested for with facial recognition technology at Jackie Chung concerts? I just assumed that one was sour cream and the other was bacon bits. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Flynn, what about you? Uh, facial recognition. I think he was arrested for having a John Bolton style mustache. Oh, yeah, that would be very bad. That'd be very bad. Cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> All right, we should probably end it there. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We do have a cat of the week, and it is a local cat in my little town of Exeter. Oh, I'm so um, glad was, this cat won. This cat, holy crap, went viral. So I was leaving this um, like opening reception for a new restaurant in town last night, and I'm walking across the municipal parking lot, and there's a cat. So what do you think I do? Of course, I'm like, hey, kitty, kitty. And it comes like trotting over. It's super friendly. And I'm like, oh, he's got all these collars on. So I pick up his collar, and on one side it says, Exeter Municipal Parking Lot Attendant. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the other side of his little collar, it says, please let me do my job. Have a nice day, Frankie. Mm. Well, my town is small. And this is talk about small world. It is actually the front office manager at my doctor's office. It's her cat. <laughs> The cat has a job as a parking lot attendant. Literally, I was, yes. And I was in the doctor's office last week and she's like, my cat really needs his own like social media page because he's really cool. And then literally I ran into this cat this week. So Frankie is the cat of the week and I'm going to get to the bottom of everything else that Frankie does. Amy Cavino, we have a chronicle story yeah, for you. Yeah, somebody needs yes. to write a story or do yeah. a TV story about this cat. I saw the pictures. First of all, it seems a little nutty to me that a cat would be a parking lot attendant. It seems like... <laughs> A little dangerous for the cat? Yeah. Uh, I, I think Frankie can take care of himself. It seems like Frankie can take care of himself just fine. Now, Laura Bricker, people want to reach out to you and perhaps see the amazing photos you posted of Frankie, the parking lot attendant cat, on Twitter. How can they find you there? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, people want to reach out to you and give you that uh, guy in Baltimore's actual motives that aren't political. Uh, for saying he's going to drop the charge against Anand <laughs> Syed if he wins his race. How can they find you on Twitter? At TobyBallNH. And Kevin Flynn, we want to reach out to you online. How can they reach you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. You can tweet to our show at Crime Writers On and join the very, very fine folks on the official 
Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group or leave a comment on our regular old Facebook page. But no, you should really join the group because that's where it's at. (laughs) You can support us at patreon.com and hear Toby's exclusive book club podcast. Toby, what's coming up next on the book club this month? In Cold Blood. Mm, Who are the guests? Special guest. Kevin P. Flynn. Yes. Nice. Nice. And for other exclusive ad-free content, including our outstanding relationship show called Married with Podcast, Podcast. you can subscribe at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. Go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, and just know this. Our theme song was performed by the amazing Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, formerly known as Studio C and otherwise known as the closet in our basement where all of our Puerto Rican friends are welcome to join us. But that dude Bikram who has the yoga is not welcome to join us. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Laura, you know, uh, Crime of the Week, I, I know you've only been on this podcast for about two and a half years, but when someone asks you, what do you think this crime is, they're not literally asking, what do you think the crime is? <laughs> you, know, why just I, you, just, you know you're supposed to make some shit up, right? Say goodbye to expensive TV bills. Philo is the simple, powerful app for watching TV. Get access to more than 35 of your favorite entertainment channels like Investigation Discovery, HGTV, AMC, VH1, Discovery Lifetime, and more, as well as live TV on demand and unlimited recording, all for $16 a month, no contract needed. And there's never been a better deal. Start your free trial instantly with just a phone number. No credit card needed. Visit go.philo.com slash crime. That's go.philo.com slash crime or text the word crime to 74456. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.